Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I would say that more and more there's a consensus emerging that open access is the way to go. That relatively soon all the papers will be freely accessible. There's there's so much demand from the academics and the funding agencies about that that I think that it's pretty hard to see a world where the paywall persists and survives. Really dramatically affecting the value of what the public is paying for. The public is paying for most of the research, but most people can't actually read the results of that research. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We're doing something a little bit different this week. We're going to go dive into a world that most of you have probably don't think about, but is actually quite important to the world as we know it. And that world is academic publishing. So, a quick summary. There's about 25,000 journals for scientists, researchers, professors, etc. publish papers on everything that they're working on from climate change to cancer research and everything in between. These journals are basically the top of the funnel. They're the broadcast medium for scientists to get the word out on what they're working on, the advances they've made, kind of like a first link in a chain that others will build on and then eventually leading to something quite fabulous that we will all benefit from. But what you may not know is that the industry is controlled by a very small handful of companies, the biggest of which is Elsevier in the UK. But the big four publishers, big four or five, they own most of the top journals. And they put most of the material that shows up in those journals behind a very tall, very robust paywall. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry. And it somehow avoided the disruption that it's hit pretty much every other corner of the publishing world, from music to television, of course, my industry, newspapers, films, etc. But that could all be about to change. At least that's the view of Richard Price, who's the founder of Academia.edu, which is an online publisher slash social media network for the academic world. And what he wants to do is basically tear down all the paywalls, and make everything available, every piece of research in the world, for free, instantly, for anyone who wants to look at it. And so the other day, I went around to his office in downtown San Francisco to hear about what he's up to, and he's got a great backstory, and I think what he is doing is quite interesting. But then after him, you'll hear from our second guest, who is Jeffrey Mackey Mason. And he's an economist, 
And he's also the chief librarian at the University of California. And I brought him on because the UC system, which is 10 universities, are locked in some very fraught negotiations with Elsevier. And he is one of the people leading those negotiations. And it's over just this issue of price and access and how people get to see this research that, you know, is quite important. And so I think you'll find that chat really fascinating. And then finally, I had planned to bring on Elsevier themselves to give their side, just in the interest of fairness, if nothing else. But technology issues on their end, unfortunately, made that not possible. But before I go, I will summarize their repost to some of the main points that you are about to hear. So stick around. I think you'll find it illuminating and important because what hangs in the balance is the future of scientific progress as we know it. Oh yeah. So first up, Richard Price, the founder of academia.edu, right now. So the fundamental essence of the academic community is about making discoveries and finding things out and then communicating those discoveries to the world. Why should we care? So much of technology comes ultimately out of academic research. The pace of progress in the world is dependent to some degree on the pace of scientific research. How does it work today? Because effectively, it's controlled by what I will call, say, an oligopoly. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. So it's a handful of companies, four or five. And so if I'm a researcher and I'm working on cancer and I make a breakthrough, how does it get out to the world and how does that system work today? Mm. You make a breakthrough, you've done your study, you've got some results. The first step is to submit your paper to a journal. The Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, whatever. There are about 25,000 different journals in the world. The editor of the journal will take a look at it and decide, is this worthy of peer review? And if it is, then he or she will, sometimes in their own mind, just sort of think about a couple of appropriate people who might be able to peer review it. And then they will email those academics and say, would you mind peer reviewing this paper? And they're usually given a few months to to give an answer. A few Um, months? A few months, yeah. The answers are typically either no or revise and resubmit. Revise and resubmit means here are some comments. Please incorporate them. Please improve the paper. Please do another experiment or you need to cite some more sources. goes back to the peer reviewers after that. The sort of second draft goes back to the peer reviewers. The whole process on average takes about a year for a given journal to get From the, the paper. the moment out. that you submit it to when it sees the light of day. That's right, yeah. And how much do these journals cost? So historically the content is paywalled. If you go online today, it'll cost for a given PDF about 35 to $40 to download a PDF. A university will typically have a bulk subscription um, and pay you know, maybe $10, $50 million a year for subscription to a bunch of different journals. Wow. And so that's what's interesting. It's like it's a big business. So I, I was mentioning before we started uh, the podcast, I was speaking to Reed Elsevier, it's a big UK company. It's the biggest publisher in the world. And I think today, this is January 31st, there's a kind of, I don't know, I'll call, it, I'll call it a showdown with the University of California system. And they're saying they're kind of rebelling against what Reed Elsevier is charging for access to these journals, which I think really leads into what it is you're trying to do here. Because obviously, 
what you're doing is very different and it seems to me and you can tell me whether this is an appropriate analogy or not but basically doing what spotify or napster did to the music industry to academic publishing our view is that with the internet there's an opportunity for rebuilding that whole communication system for academic research from the ground up a totally different system doesn't have paywalls for example it's totally open much faster you don't have those 12 month time, time lags just different ways of disseminating the content in the first place so what are you doing here what is academia.edu yeah should i tell you how i got started yeah, with please, the project please so i was in the uk that's where i grew up i did my undergrad uh, in pp at oxford uh, did my uh, master's in philosophy at oxford my, my dphil otherwise known as a phd at oxford uh, in philosophy and as i was finishing my doctorate I wanted to share my own papers with the world, and there was no easy way to do that. So I thought, okay, let's create a, a site where it's very easy just to communicate and get my papers out there. And that was that, that was academia. I decided to move out to to San Francisco. I wanted to be out here to start the company. Just pause. So you're a philosophy student, and you decide you want to start a publishing company. Have you done something like this before? I mean, it just seems like a little bit of a left turn. It does, doesn't it? So I'd actually started a few companies before whilst I was at Oxford. And my first one was, just after my master's finished, I started a company called Richard's Banana Bakery, where I sold banana cakes to uh, offices in London and in cafes. Did you make the, the banana cakes yourself? And why banana cakes of all, of all the world of cakes? It's <laughs> a great question. So the story is that I'd done you know, three years of undergrad PPE and two years of of master's philosophy and I love philosophy it's one of my absolute passions in life but I really wanted to sell something the kind of the opposite end of being a philosopher it was the opposite end a friend of mine had an amazing recipe for banana cake and I thought I can sell this I wasn't much of a chef but I learned how to make banana cake quite quickly how did it go well um we made money but we uh, <laughs> it was just me there was a lot of labor and I then spotted that sandwiches were actually a better opportunity commercially because people buy sandwiches every day. Yeah. Cakes are a once-a-week treat. And also there's the ticket price for a sandwich is much higher, so the profit margin is higher. So I started, I, I morphed the company into a sandwich company called Dashing Lunches, and that was delivering sandwiches, to again, to offices in London. Right. And were you making the sandwiches as well? I mean, uh, how many, so how many, uh, we'll get back to academia, but I'm just curious about the, what was your kind of top cake turnout on a given day like how many cakes would you have made in a day we were probably making you're probably selling about 30 or 40 slices a day oh, okay. which was equivalent to about like set making about seven or eight cakes a day and then when we did the sandwiches it was a one-man band it was just me but i was uh making about 50 sandwiches a day in the morning in a rented kitchen and i'd get up at five in the morning and make them this was during the vacations actually away from my my doctorate right so I used the vacations for building uh, these companies. I did a couple of more, actually, after Dashing Lunches. I, I wanted, after Dashing Lunches got going, I, I did around that for about a year. I felt that I wanted to do something that was more scalable. Um, more scalable than sandwich? More scalable than... <laughs> yeah, I, I had this sandwich round, and I felt that to do a second sandwich round would be about the same amount of work as do the first one, and I yeah. wanted something where it just kind of worked by itself. And so I thought about... You needed a sandwich platform. I, I needed a... <laughs> I started looking at the internet. <laughs> so what was the what were the other businesses? Did those work? So the, the next one was a student accommodation website. So that's basically a search engine for 
student housing at Oxford called liveout.co.uk. Turns out at that time, the student housing options were not available online in a database. Ran that for about a year. And then I did a Facebook app, actually. That was just when the first API from Facebook launched. August 06, I had an app called People Radar where you could you could rate photos and uh, see your see your photo ratings of your own photos, and that was actually very popular. It did, it did was that a hot or not type? It was a hot rating? or not type style app, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was very popular on the Facebook platform. But as I was getting to the end of my doctorate, I also had this idea for academia, and I thought, well, the the idea for academia is a much more exciting idea. I want to focus on that. Right. And to come back to your original question about sort of sharp turn. I had spoken to my other friends in academia, other grad students, and it was, seemed like a common problem of getting papers out. Right. Um, I didn't originally conceive of it as academic publishing. It was just like getting your papers easily accessible online. Right. Was academia.edu, was that someone didn't own that, that website? Yeah, we, we actually bought a company that already owned that name. How did um, you get the money to do that? I raised venture capital in London before moving out to San Francisco. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Um, so I raised about three hundred twelve thousand five hundred pounds. That's the exact amount for from, our, who? from um, Spark Ventures, and How's That Media, and Brent Hobman. So you raise money, you get the website, and then you move out here. That's right. Yeah. Then we assemble a team out here. Ben Land, the CTO, came out so shortly after I came out here, and we launched the site in September two thousand and eight. And how did it go? It's a great question. The first few months, I remember we, you know, we'd get, you know, 50 signups a day. Slowly but surely, we got to 10,000 signups and then to 50,000. And then a friend of mine posted on my Facebook, well, here's to 500,000 registered users. Yeah. I thought, wow, that is a big lift. That's, you know, that's going to take a while. He hadn't figured out scalable growth by that point. Then we did figure out scalable growth. Yeah, we sort of quickly hit 500K and then a million and then, and then 10 million. Now we're about 17 million. It took us about four years, I guess, to get get the first six million registered users right and now it's about like i think 72 million what did you figure out did you was it i don't know facebook ads or ads in journals themselves or what well there are a couple of things that worked for us one was really understanding the search volume the degree of interest in these academic papers is so high that we had a lot of search traffic and convincing the search traffic those people visiting from search to, to sign up was the key thing, right. one of the key things. Google's from Google searches. From Google search, and right. mainly Google, yeah. Right. It's also encouraging people to invite their co-authors uh, on a paper. It was sort of naturally viral. Yeah. So those are the two, mo- two was most there a thing? Was there a trick that you figured out that would get, when people found you on Google or would have found a paper on academia, that would actually get them to sign up? Yeah, so the... Papers are converted, uploaded in PDF format, but we convert them to HTML. So they display as HTML in the browser. So that's just viewable as a, as a sort of logged out Google visitor. But uh, to download the PDF, you need to sign up. Then it turns out a lot of people sign up to download the PDF, and they end up uploading their own PDFs and just generally becoming an active user. And it's free. Yeah, it's totally free. So how many papers do you have on it now? So you've been doing this now for 11 years almost? Mm. Yeah, just over 10, yeah. How much progress have you made, and what is the ultimate destination? We um, have about 20 million PDFs uploaded. There are about 100 million out there. 
So there the, are 100 million research papers in the world. Ever published, yeah. Ever published, yeah. right. Our mission overall as a company is to accelerate the world's research, and one aspect of that is getting every paper ever written available free on the internet. We're 20% of the way to, to that goal. Google tried this with books. They wanted to put every book online, or et cetera, and it be- created a huge kind of backlash from publishers, some authors, et cetera. Surely there's some resistance to what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's a great question. In our case, the academics have a very strong desire to make their papers freely available because they they live to discover and then communicate their results. Um, They love the validation that comes with someone else using their research. Any kind of impact is good impact for an academic. Correspondingly, on the reader side of things, they love accessing research for free. So right now, yeah, we have about 45 million people visiting the site a month accessing research. And so there's this sort of nice relationship where the academics are uploading because they want people to use the content and there's really a strong demand for that. As for the Google Books analogy, I don't think the authors were necessarily as excited about it, whereas in our case, the authors are are the uploaders there. But if we go back to this idea that academic publishing is controlled by effectively a cartel, there's four or five companies that that are the gatekeepers to this stuff. Mm and they charge huge amounts of money for access to it. I mean, it sounds like effectively you're trying to put these huge vested interests with billions of dollars coming in out of business. Yeah, so that's a really interesting trend. Certainly for, you know, like hundreds of years, really, the business model of academic publishing has been the paywall. But over the last 10 years, there's just been an enormous shift. The academic community has woken up to the fact that they really, really care about open access. They want have a very strong desire for their content to be available for free. The people who fund research, whether governments or foundations, have a very strong desire that their funding dollars go into research that's ultimately free and has a maximum impact. You know, governments often say we don't want our taxpayers to pay twice for the research. Well, because that's one of the interesting points, right? Is so a huge amount of this research, research especially inter- university research, is taxpayer funded, yep. or you know, for if national institutes of health, what what have you. Yeah, it's funded by the taxpayer. Then the results are basically grabbed by a private company put behind a paywall. And so if the world wants to see it, you have to pay 40 bucks a pop to do it. Yeah, that, and that is shifting. There's this now so much momentum around open access from so many different sources. The academic community is one. Funding agencies is another. Universities themselves, from their perspective as institutions, they want the research their faculty publishes to have the maximum impact. So when you think about like research's main goal being to sort of be communicated, have an impact on the world. Over the last 10 years, there's there's been an enormous amount of momentum behind this open access idea. And journals themselves are shifting as well. So you're seeing a new business model emerge that's not paywall-based. It's free to read, but they request that the authors pay a fee up front, and that's called open access publishing, and they pay like a... Well, the authors then get reimbursed by that grant or that sort of government funding agency. Right, but that'll be anywhere... That'll be thousands of dollars. It is very expensive, yeah. So the the fundamental publishing mechanics haven't changed. They just flip the fee from landing on the reader to landing on the author. Why would the author pay? Yeah, in some cases, they pay because there's a mandate from their funding agency. So if you get take money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they require that any research that gets published gets paid for with one of these, an open access model. And so they so, want it to be out there for free. Yeah. So they, the UK government also has a, a mandate similar to that, not quite quite as much teeth as the Gates Foundation mandate, but it still emphasizes very strongly 
having the papers be freely available immediately. Where are we with that kind of, that shift? Read Elsevier, for example, they're still making however many billion dollars, billion pounds a year. Yeah. On th- effectively the traditional model. Yeah. Do you think that will go away? Yeah, so the, I, th- I think publishing infrastructure and the way that the peer review process works is still the same as it was in the pre-internet era. You know, it's extremely slow. It revolves around getting two people to submit their opinions. It's not super-duper high quality either. It's not like once something's peer-reviewed, that means that you can rely on it because it's correct or anything. Um, it does feel all a bit kind of random and subjective. Yeah, and pe- you know, peer-reviewers are just humans. They miss things. They're not experts yeah. on every aspect of the paper. There's you know some recent studies over the last few years that suggest that a very high percentage of peer-reviewed papers are actually not reproducible. I.e., you can't if you try to reproduce the conclusions of the paper with you know, the same experimental setup. You don't, in the most of the t- most of the time, get the same results. In other words, the review process is not catching basic flaws. That's right. Yeah, it's not catching all the issues with the paper. Right. And so just because something's peer-reviewed, you know, even with this like year-long delay and this enormous expense, it's not like you're getting a Rolls-Royce product up the other end. Yeah. But so, for example, if I'm going back to my mythical cancer researcher, if I want to get something published in, say, The Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine, these, you know, super respected journals, is that not good for my career prospects? Because isn't publishing and public and where you publish, aren't those directly correlated into getting tenure or getting a raise or getting some new position. Yeah, I, I think that's right on the money. The way that academics are measured as far as promotion and tenure is concerned is based on impact metrics to the degree to which they've impacted the field. And that is a combination of the venues they've gotten published in um, as well as how often they're cited and things like that, any measure of impact. So you will find academics be very keen to publish in Nature and the Lancet and the New England yeah. Journal. And they will put up with these, this process because it's good for their careers. It's not necessarily the best process for science, but it is the way that careers have been measured. And do you think that will change? I mean, because don't you need that ultimately to be successful? I guess one of the questions is, is around what you are publishing. Is it the kind of the bottom 20%? Is it the kind of the fringe researchers who are just like, well, I just want to get this out there because there's no way I would make it into nature or science or the Lancet or what have you. So can you speak to, to that dynamic and how, you know, what it, who is publishing on academia mm. and how does it compare to the most prestigious places? So academia right now exists as a complementary service so to journals. So you'll publish your paper in a journal and you'll upload to academia the preprint of the, of the paper, which the journal is typically fine with. Uh, you're allowed to share on the web the preprint. and In some cases, the, there are various different versions of an article. There's the final version, which in most cases you're not allowed to share, assuming it's a paywalled article. Right. There's the version you submit to the journal, which typically you are allowed to share. So you find this bifurcation where academics get most of their audience on academia, because that's where the readers are, like 45 million a month. But uh, they're still publishing in journals, because that's, uh, that's traditionally how... And how does, yeah, so I don't know, what it would be the circulation of, I don't know, nature, or um, really the big journals, just for kind of... Yeah. A comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you just take a single journal like Nature, it's going to be subscribed to by many of the world's top universities. In terms of its web traffic, Nature.com, it's, it's 
I don't know. I had to guess. I mean, probably about five million. Yeah, yeah. If I had to guess it's probably in the four to five yeah. million range. Right. So it's a different different scale. What you are doing relative to what they're generating. Yeah. So a lot of the academics, the reason they use academia is for their audience, for their readership. They find that if they upload papers to academia, their papers get disseminated through the network very rapidly. Academics on academia have a news feed where they can sort of see papers streaming through the news feed that are in their field and they just sort of click and read. On the network, not only is it a way of disseminating papers through the network to people in your field, but there are also peer review elements. So for example, one feature is called Sessions, where you upload a paper that you haven't yet submitted to a journal. So it's really like a work in progress, but you want feedback from the field. And you can invite people to leave feedback and leave comments on the paper. And this can be a, just a dialogue over 20 Yeah, so days. that was going to be my question, is that, you know, to get published in one of these very respected journals. Because, you know, oftentimes they, those articles, are they end up leading a news cycle. Because, oh, you know, the latest version of or edition of Nature, such and such, researchers have made this breakthrough, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Yeah. Could I just make up something and put it up on academia? I mean, or, or what is the peer review process in terms of quality control? Well, the way we've built the platform so far and the way we're developing it further is that you can just upload stuff and it gets disseminated. And then as it gets disseminated through the network, expert academics can sort of deposit their expertise on the paper as it goes through. So Sessions is one example of that where you can, you can kind of collaborate on a paper if you're invited into the session, for example. We have another tool where a small percentage of our users, like 30K, 30,000 users, are called editors, and they have this special superpower. They can recommend papers as they're coming through, so they have to have a PhD in the field and, and so on. And then the, the paper gets a score called paper rank, and paper rank is a sort of incrementing score that goes up in accordance with how many recommendations the paper has re- received. But we, and we also look at the, the reputation of the recommender. So we have these peer review systems that, you know, we, put, we get about like 10,000 recommendations a month right now. These peer review systems that are growing and Increasingly, people are quite proud to receive recommendations and quite proud to have their paper rank grow. Ultimately, I think an internet-first approach to communicating academic discoveries will supplant the pre-internet model, meaning yeah. a system that's like completely based on the internet where you upload, it gets disseminated not a year later, but instantly, and then the peer review process and the way in which academics want to sort of deposit their expertise in the paper just happens sort of organically through the network. And that paper will either kind of trickle down into obscurity or it'll get a paper rank that kind of takes it to the top and more and more people see it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's how the newsfeed works today. If you recommend a paper, it kind of mega blasts it out to a very large audience. Because it does feel to me just this is a big industry and it feels like it's maybe one of the last bastions of kind of the old school. Because if you think about film and what's happening with streaming, you think about music, newspapers, magazines, etc. They're all in, in the midst of this dramatic change. And it feels like academic publishing still basically controlled by four or five companies who are making loads of money. Is that fair? Yeah, people say it's a racket. You know, it's, <laughs> it is a, it's a remarkable business model. I mean, they get all the content for free, get the peer reviews for free. I think academics, the reason that They've been so animated about moving to open access, which and there's been a lot of progress over the, in, in that regard over the last 10 years, is that they, they don't love the fact that they supply all this content and they supply all the peer review labor for free and then have to pay to sort of read the results. Now, that said, it is still reasonably expensive, or actually it's very expensive in the, histori- in the old-fashioned model of doing academic publishing, 
where you have an editor in a room going through his or her mental Rolodex and emailing out peer reviewers and just orchestrating the whole thing with Microsoft Word documents and emails. That's as email. systematic as it gets. Just, I'm the editor. I need to just call up a couple of people I know. Yeah, I mean, you'll sometimes have an assistant who will go through the paper and look at citations. Oh, maybe we'll ask, you know, Jeffrey Flake. And, right. You know, it doesn't, it's not always the mental Rolodex, but it's a yeah. very by-hand process. Whereas, you know, just to give an example, the way that sort of sessions works in academia, you can upload a draft paper, you, know, you can send out 20 invites, and then the session can spread virally through the network because as people join the session, their followers are notified about the session. So you can assemble an audience quite quickly. With it. You, know, you can assemble an audience of 50 people in the session within a day, and then they start discussing it straight away. The old school model has a very, very high cost structure. Yeah, and it's was, because it's not to, yeah, based on severe. I think there's the profit margin is thirty six percent. Yeah, so they have like, a high cost structure, which is like yeah. Facebook's profit margin. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah, very high in profit margins. <laughs> I guess the other uh, so you have these the big three or four or five conglomerates, and then you have people like Harvard University Press, Oxford University Press. What is their view of what you are doing? Yeah, it's a great question. They, as you say, I mean, those are kind of owned typically by the universities, and the universities are very much in favor of open access. But at the same time, they do sometimes get, like, in the case of OUP, a relatively small stream of cash in the form of dividend income from the press. But they're, they're relatively small players in the overall scheme of things. Right. And many of them actually, those presses are actually best known for their books rather than journals. How do you make money? We have a premium business model where academics can pay $100 a year for premium features, like being notified when they got cited, having access to advanced search features. We have just over 100,000 paying members right now. And when did you launch that? That was fully rolled out to the whole user base in mid-2017. And then we got became cash flow positive at the end of that year in November 2017 with 35,000 paying users and then... And now we're just over 100, and we, in about a year, we've tripled the subscriber base. So it does feel like something is happening. Yeah, it's now a sustainable operation, and you know, about just over 100,000 people pay for a site that's used by 45 million people a month. And the economics work out. Right, right. And it's a relatively small amount, as I said, it's $100 a year. Is there a kind of a, and I don't know if this is, an, again, an appropriate analogy, but is there a Lars Ulrich in in this world? You know, when Napster was happening, Lars Ulrich from Metallica went out and said, they're pirating our stuff. This is a travesty. They need to be stopped. Like, you know, this digital music revolution can't happen, at least the way it was happening then. Is there a movement, whether it's one of the big publishers or, I don't know, somebody who's saying, what you are doing is wrong? Is the fight getting dirty? No, the fights, I, I would say that more and more there's a consensus emerging that open access is the way to go. That relatively soon all the papers will be freely accessible. There's, there's so much demand from the academics and the funding agencies about that that I think that it's pretty hard to see a world where the paywall persists and survives. Something called the flip, the flip from the paywall model to the, the open access model. There's not a lot of prior art in this industry. There are not a lot of other companies working on these problems in a kind of internet-first way, yeah. which is really fun. We're forging our own path, building this communication system. You can't sort of look out there and think, oh, they're doing it well. Let's take that model and do it a little bit better. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So that was Richard. And now, as I mentioned, you are going to hear from Jeffrey Mackey Mason, who, just as a refresher, librarian at the University of California, which is basically balked at the conditions being demanded by Elsevier. So on one side, you have University of California, Berkeley, and its sister schools, who together are the biggest producers of research in America. And on the other side, you have the biggest publisher of said research. So it's a really fascinating showdown that just really highlights everything that is happening here. So I'll get out of the way and give you now Jeffrey Mackey Mason. Uh, well, the University of California, of course, is a major research institution. We actually generate about 10% of the published research in the U.S. every year. And so our faculty and students read a lot of scientific articles. And Elsevier is the largest publisher of scientific articles in the world. So we've had a subscription with them. Our five-year subscription expired on December 31st of 2018. And we've been meeting with them since July of 2018 to negotiate a renewal but we had some different objectives this time in the system, and thus far have not been able to reach an agreement with Elsevier. Um, we have been negotiating very actively. Both sides have been creative and working hard, but we're quite far apart from an agreement. We still have a ways to go. Where are the differences? Is it simply a question of price? No, it's it, that is one of the questions. We, we basically have three objectives uh, that we set out from the beginning and we've been very public about. One is that we believe prices should be lower. Uh, Elsevier has an enormously high profit margin by the calculation of various financial market analysts. Their profit margin is about 43%, which is one of the highest profit margins of any publicly traded company in the world. And we're a public institution. We don't think we should be paying uh, extortionary profits to a private enterprise. So we're trying to get lower prices. But at least as important to us, if not more so, is that we think research should be published open access. That is that research, almost all of it funded by the public that is done by our scientists and scholars should be available for anybody to read, not just those who can afford to pay for it. And the prices of journals have gone up so much that more and more people can't afford to subscribe and can't even access the research that we're doing and publishing. So we want open access for all 
articles published by uh, UC, University of California authors. And then the third goal is to solve this problem by, of getting open access and lower prices by having what we call a transformative or integrated contract that combines subscription payments and publication payments into one contract and gradually transforms from being a subscription contract into being a publication contract so that instead of paying to, to read, we're paying to publish. So those are our three objectives. We're far apart, unfortunately, pretty much on all of them. We've gotten to the point where we're talking about the same things and we're making an effort. They're listening to us. We're listening to them. And we're at least discussing how we might be able to resolve those issues. But we're still far apart on price. We're still far apart on how much open access publishing the UC can do. I think the one thing we've agreed on is that we should be able to have an integrated contract. So we seem to be agreeing on that. But the terms of that contract, uh, both in terms of price and open access, we have a lot of work still to do. And you mentioned price. Can you give a sense of kind of what has happened to the price of academic journals? And I guess the follow-on question is, why should I, as a kind of your typical man in the street, why should I care one way or the other? Well, first, with the dawn of the digital age, which for publishing really was in about the mid-1990s when publishing started moving towards digital, people thought, gosh, digital's cheap. Uh, Everything should become a lot less expensive than publishing in print. But the articles themselves, the content is copyrighted. It's, it's got intellectual property. It's written by individual authors. And the publishing industry has always, you know, almost all publishers have worked out a deal where authors give the copyright to the publisher in exchange for publishing, and then the publisher gets to charge for it. They own the copyright and they get to charge for it. So because they own the copyright, the publishers didn't have to cut price, even though the costs of delivering articles in electronics uh, is cheaper than delivering in print. And indeed, they've found ways to aggregate their power and have been increasing prices since around 2000, a faster rate than general inflation. Prices in the publishing industry broadly have been going up about 5 to 7% a year, which is way beyond inflation. It's beyond wage increases, beyond budgets of universities and so forth. It's gotten to the point where we can't afford it anymore. In fact, there's no institution in the U.S. that subscribes to all scholarly journals. And by that, I mean not the University of California, which is the largest system in the U.S., not Harvard, which is the best funded uh, university in the U.S. None of us can afford all of the publications anymore. And what that means is that people on the street can't afford them at all, uh, individuals. And by people on the street, that includes individual doctors who want access to current medical research, private researchers who aren't funded by a large university. It means most liberal arts colleges can't afford most journals. Uh, Liberal arts colleges, for this point of view, are basically third world countries, if you will, because they're small and they don't have large research budgets. They can't afford most scholarly publications. So it's really become a have and have not situation as the prices rise. And we're trying to fight against that. And is it too dramatic to say that what happens in a research lab in universities, whether it's UCLA or Berkeley or Harvard or wherever, that is the kind of the beginning of a funnel of, you know, science that can actually be quite transformative for the world. In other words, this old school publishing model could be seen as a kind of an impediment to scientific progress, you know, that trickles down to kind of everybody. Absolutely. I mean, certainly that's what we think, but it's, uh, I think there's no question it's true. Most of the basic research in the world is done in universities and nonprofit sometimes government, sometimes nonprofit research labs. By basic research, we mean things like the research that's advancing our knowledge on fighting cancer 
We mean research that's advancing our knowledge on the nature of global warming and how to deal with the impacts of global warming. We mean public health research, uh, as well as basic social research, whether it be psychology uh, or sociology or economics. That's where the research is happening. And if the results aren't available to policymakers, to private practitioners and researchers, or to the students in liberal arts colleges, we're slowing down the advancement of society. And one of the ways we're slowing it down is, you know, I, I said that liberal arts colleges in the U.S. effectively are third world countries in the sense they can't afford most publications. Well, I mentioned third world countries because researchers in third world countries can't afford most research publications. So we're stopping the progress of science in third world countries, in smaller institutions, and really dramatically affecting the value of what the public is paying for. The public is paying for most of the research but most people can't actually read the results of that research. Right now, so the UC, you guys are the biggest producers of research in America. And you have basically now do not have a contract with the largest publisher. Is that not quite a big sacrifice? How do you square that kind of going forward? Or what's the kind of the end game if you can't reach an agreement? Well, first, to be clear, since you mentioned our publication production, the, the contract at the moment is for reading. So we can still publish. Authors can submit their articles and Elsevier isn't rejecting them as far as we know. What we don't have is a contract to be able to read the articles published by Elsevier. At this point, Elsevier has continued to provide access. They have not cut us off. So we are not, our scholars, our faculty, our students are not suffering at the moment because of a loss of access. But that could change literally at any moment. We don't have a contract and Elsevier could decide that it no longer wants to provide access. And yeah, that would be a sacrifice. It would be uh, costly in time and in resources to us. It would slow down our researchers and interfere with our students' learning. There are other ways to get access to some articles, a, a modest number of them. We can borrow them, uh, a modest number through interlibrary loan from other universities. Um, some of them are published open access, about roughly 15% of the articles are already available open access. We could buy by the article at about $30 an article, quite expensive, but we could get access, but it would cost more money and it would slow us down. So it would be a sacrifice, uh, but it's one that we're willing to risk to get what we think would be a transformative agreement that would help change the industry for the advancement and, and the betterment of society. Well, it does feel like just thinking about, I mean, even in my industry in newspapers, we're going through a huge change and it's, it's obviously pretty painful and lots of old players are getting just crunched as well as new players. Nobody's quite figured out a kind of a model that really truly works and is broadly applicable. It does feel that this system, academic publishing, is must be kind of the last bastion of publishing to that is yet to be touched by the internet. Do you think that's fair? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I hesitate to say the last because somebody else will come along and say, oh, no, you forgot about you know something else. But it certainly is the case that the rate of change in the scholarly publishing industry has been pretty slow. Uh, it's dominated by just a few very large for-profit firms, and they have been slow to change, and they've been very successful at holding on to past models. One thing I do want to make clear is, you know, you mentioned the newspaper industry, which is really struggling. We're not trying in any way to destroy the scholarly publishing industry or to, you know, cripple it. We need it. It's a, it's a mutual partnership, if you will. Our, we want to publish our research and we want the world to be able to read it. So we need the publishing industry. 
We just want them to accept the money to publish rather than charge people to read so that everybody can read. And we would like to see more reasonable prices, but we're not, you know, something below 43% profits is going to still keep Elsevier in business. Right. And it does feel like, I mean, if you, if we look at what's happening with you guys kind of taking this stand, um, the same thing has happened in Germany. Um, and then there's this whole thing, uh, plan S I think it's called, which is foundations from 11 European countries who are saying as of 2020, any work we fund needs to be open access, needs to be free for anybody to read. Is that, that's that basically the, the kind of the gist of it. Yeah. So it does feel like maybe we're kind of reaching a tipping point. And I hesitate to say that because in 1995, Forbes famously wrote that Elsevier would be the first victim of the internet, quote unquote. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't remember that. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, they's hardly, they've hardly been a victim. In fact, they've indeed figured out how to exploit it quite well. Yeah. So I guess the question is, are we at this moment now? Are, are we at a kind of a, a tipping point? You know, it is hard to tell. And I'm always very cautious about forecasting the future because I think most uh, forecasts, particularly in technology businesses, go wrong. But there are some fundamentals. You know, I'm, a, I'm an economist and we look at the fundamentals and there's some fundamentals. And the fact that it costs almost zero to duplicate and distribute information electronically is a fundamental. And that's what's been changing all of the publishing industries, whether it be newspapers, music, uh, and so forth, uh, movies. They're changing because the cost structure has changed. And that's true for scholarly publishing as well. I do think that we're really seeing something different happening now. It's been 25 years that we've been working on trying to get to an open access world. That's basically when the open access movement started in universities. It's been very slow progress, very frustrating. But the last few years has have shown some really dramatic new developments. You mentioned Germany. Germany canceled its contract with Elsevier two years ago uh, and is still uh, doesn't have a contract. Sweden canceled their contract last year. Hungary canceled its contract at the end of December. We don't have a contract with Elsevier. I'm aware of at least two other large national entities that currently don't have a contract. They haven't gone public, so I'm not going to mention it. But there are a number of different institutions now that are saying enough is enough. It's time to change. And then Plan S, the, uh, it's 11 European funding agencies, but also the Gates Foundation and I believe some others are close to signing on to Plan S which is saying, again, enough is enough. We're paying for the research. We want it published open access. So it's hard to say. Um, there's a conference that happens about every year in Berlin on open access that's been sort of the epicenter for a lot of these uh, efforts. And at the Berlin 14 conference in this just this past December, three representatives from the top research institutions in China, the National uh, Academy of Sciences and, and two national libraries, made public statements uh, committing Chinese research institutions to something like Plan S or other transformative agreements. They, they have also said that that's exactly what they want. And that's very significant because now China is the single largest producer of published research in the world. There, there's more coming out of China than out of the U.S. So we're now seeing more and more institutions and, and national organizations saying that it's time to change. And I think we may really be close to that tipping point, but we'll have to see. And what's so fascinating is that in the meantime, you have these just this kind of handful, this kind of oligopoly who are just continue to kind of make these 
astounding profit margins in the middle of this publicly funded research and and kind of being acting as middlemen as a way to get it out into the world. It just it's uh it seems like an kind of this thing that most people don't think about, but it's uh obviously it's a huge industry. I mean, it is. It's it's uh, an over ten billion dollar industry worldwide. Um, it's not one that the public recognizes that much, but those of us in academia and research recognize it completely. And you know, there's one other. You mentioned the other or the the big for profit publishers. There was one other major event recently I forgot to mention, and that is Wiley, one of the big four for profit publishers, did just sign a transformative agreement with Germany. Uh, of exactly the sort that uh, the Germany's been seeking with Elsevier and that we're seeking with Elsevier, in which all research published by German scholars and researchers is now going to be published open access if it's published by Wiley in a cost-contained contract. That type of agreement that we've all been seeking just got signed between one of the big publishers and one of the most productive research nations. So that's another sign we think that the industry is really on the verge of moving forward to the future. This question of prestige and impact, so something like, say, The Lancet, if I'm a cancer researcher, that's where I want my paper to appear. And then there's a whole process around kind of ranking the impact of my research, and then that affects how, you know, my promotions or lack thereof, who funds me or who doesn't, etc. Is it the case that also... Elsevier, uh, in particular, or the other big publishers also kind of own that grading system, which makes it harder to kind of break this kind of circle? Mostly. I, let me clear that up a little bit. First of all, you've described it correctly, that uh, there are certain journals that are more prestigious and scholars uh, often prefer to, if they can, get published in the more prestigious journals. It helps their career. There's no question about that. It's not so much that the publishers own the grading system as much as they own the journals that have been around a long time and have developed many of the top reputations. Uh, not all. The, the for-profit publishers don't own all the top journals. But one thing they figured out and they've done very well at is collecting portfolios that include many of the top journals, like Lancet, which is an Elsevier journal. So that's a lot of their power, that they have certain journals that authors want to publish in if they possibly can. You can't publish wherever you want. You have to get accepted. You have to be good enough or your article has to be good enough. But that's a big part of the power of the publishers is I could start a new journal tomorrow. It's very straightforward to do so. People do it all the time. But the journal I start wouldn't have any reputation. So it would be hard for me to attract the top articles in the field and the top scientists to publish in it. And that reputation, that accumulated reputation is part of the power that the publishers have. Well, I wish you luck in in the negotiations. It sounds like um, there's still a lot of clear blue water to cross to get to the other side. Yeah, we're we're I don't I don't know if cautiously optimistic, maybe a little strong, but we we are talking, we are hopeful, I guess is the right word, that we'll be able to come closer together. It's we do have a lot of blue water, as you say. Now, as I said at the beginning, I did interview Elsevier. But due to technical difficulties, we couldn't record. But I did want to at least sum up their arguments, of which there are a few key ones. The first of which is that the company pointed out that open access has been around for 20 years. This is not a new idea. This is not a revolution. It remains a fringe activity. So broadly speaking, about 80% of the articles that are published every year are done so in journals, you know, kind of the old school way. And that only about 15% are done open access, which Elsevier offers as an option, every one of its journals. 
And they make the point several times that they are simply a service provider. They provide a menu of options. It's up to academics and universities where they want to publish. And overwhelmingly, they choose to do it in journals. That's their argument. One point that is worth noting is a lot of those open access offers at those journals require that the university or the academic pay upfront, sometimes several thousand dollars, to then offer that to the world. And it's a point of conflict because academics are saying, well, we're already paying for subscription, then we have to pay to publish as well. And that's double dipping. Therein lies the conflict. The other points on cost, Elsevier argues effectively, they're worth it. So every year they get a 1.6 million article submissions. They also manage 22,000 editors, 87,000 editorial board members, and uh, about a million reviewers. And even though a lot of that core labor is free, the whole machine to manage all of that costs, and it costs a lot. And that's what they say they pay for through their subscriptions, article fees, etc. And they also point out that those fees have risen slower than many of their competitors. And then finally, with the University of California in particular, they point out that every year they negotiate or have to renegotiate about 2,000 deals. This is just another one of those. And these are commercial talks. Sometimes they get difficult. They get a bit tetchy, but this is just, you know, part of the job. And what it is not, they say, is indicative of anything like a larger movement, a, a Napster moment like Mackie Mason talked about. There you go. Everything you've ever wanted to know about a $10 billion industry you never think about, but that is quite important. So maybe next time when you take an antibiotic or spin in an electric car or walk through an airport, you'll think about this whole structure of researchers toiling away in the background that perhaps may help to make that possible. That's it for this week. I will leave you until next week. And in the meantime, please have a good weekend. If you have be interested in any feedback, feel free to reach out. I am on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. So that's it. I'll leave you till next weekend. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.